In Unforgettable Learning, we talk to L&D visionaries, experts and mavericks about performance, creativity and tech. In this episode, I explore messy design and onboarding with Ashley Thomas, L&D Program Manager at Google. Ashley, hi, it's such a pleasure to have you here with me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well on this uh, wonderful Tuesday morning, you know, a little bit of that post-Monday fog, but on to the uh, pre-Friday, you know, happiness. I'm doing well. The pre-Friday happiness. I love that. Already thinking about that on a Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'm so uh, excited to be talking about this topic today with you, which is about embracing messy design and, you know, what that looks like kind of in in an onboarding context. Uh, But before we do that, by way of a warm up, I wanted to ask you a question. And the question is this. If we were here 200 years from now, quite a long time, I know. What would your job be? That's such an amazing question. I mean, I know there's obviously a lot of buzz with AI and, you know, it's like what what jobs will be obsolete, you know, by the time BARD and OpenAI takes over. Um, you know, to answer your question, it would be simple. I would be a dog matchmaker because by what? 200 years, yes, because <laughs> by 200 years, I'm just going to assume that dogs will be able to talk They'll be self-actualized. And so because I love dogs so much, I'm going to be a dog matchmaker. (laughs) Love that. I was not expecting that. And I... (laughs) And so I don't really know where to go with that, but I, I, dogs will be able to talk. Where, where, where are you, why do you think this? This is just, have you got intel? Have you got inside information? <laughs> you know, here at Google, no, I think um, <laughs> just, just to be serious, I think um, in order to answer that question, it's looking at the jobs that were 200 years ago and are now obsolete. So when I think of that, I think of, you know, chimney sweepers, milkmen, milkwomen. Um, So I think 200 years from now, barring if there's no children of men, you know, uh, sci-fi dystopian universe, I would love to be a fertility specialist. I would love to help um, you know, people last year, I actually froze my eggs. Uh, wow. just, yeah, empowerment, you know, it felt awesome. It was, it was a great opportunity. And so I know a lot of friends who are currently going through pregnancy or going through fertility. And so, yeah, I would love just to help people, um, you know, grow a family, whatever that looks like. Oh my goodness. Well, just while you've said that, I'm thinking, you know, this is the unforgettable learning podcast. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty, uh, memorable thing to do, right? You're taking something and hoping that maybe at some point in the future, you're going to be able to use that egg. <laughs> I mean, like, what what, um, what process did you go through, if you don't mind me asking, that made you kind of want to do that? Yeah, you know, um, I'm a very transparent person. And I think part of that vulnerability is showing, you know, it's not always the highlight reel in my life. So, you know, I'm in my mid 30s, I'm approaching 35, actually next month. And um, I think what it came down to is I uh, broke off a relationship in 2020, a serious relationship. And I kind of thought to myself, you know what, I do want to date again. And when I date, I don't want to have the are you going to be my husband? Are you going to be the father of my children energy? And so I kind of, it's like, why do I do, uh, why do I seek out insurance? Why do I seek out, you know, kind of like future thinking? So 
the I'm privileged, you know, at Google, we have really great benefits. And so I took the, I took the chance and in 10, it was a 10 day process. And um, you know, I speak to a lot of people, people who um, know that I went through it. They ask me, what was it like? What was the insurance process like? You know, the logistics to the actual um, procedure. And so, yeah, that's kind of why I did it just to kind of, you know, not have put so much pressure on myself. Well, I'm glad I asked you this question about 200 years from now, because you're obviously always thinking into the future. So, well, what an amazing way to begin and um, kind of in a way ties in with this thought of we don't know what's coming. Things can be confusing. We're sometimes having to make preparations for whatever's going to come down the pipe that we can't predict. You mentioned AI um, and we're talking about messy design. And so let's let's dig into that a little bit. What what is it about design in L&D? And, and maybe you can perhaps first give me some context. So you're designing programs for L&D. Just tell me a bit about that and what you do exactly. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, just thank you so much for this opportunity. I always, always am passionate to talk about, you know, whether it's messy or not, uh, learning design. So I've been in learning development for a decade now. I received my master's in higher education and administration. You know, think of student affairs, academic affairs, admissions. And I quickly learned that, hmm, I'm not so much excited about the administration part of it, but I'm really excited about the ed tech part of it, the educational technology piece. So with curriculum development, you know, I've had the pleasure of um, being an instructional designer, learning designer in different industries, different fields, uh, customer service training, call center training, consumer space. Uh, I used to work at Axon, the company that makes taser stun guns and body cameras for law enforcement. And uh, London Met is one of their uh, largest customers. And so I was able to, you know, design virtual learning, you know, what does it mean to have blended learning? Um, yeah, so I've been in different spaces and I've been at Google for three and a half years and it has been such an adventure. I first started out in people operations, POP specifically, people development. And so that's Google's central, you know, learning and development uh, function. So having the pleasure of redesigning Nugler, Google School for Leaders, Google School for Googlers, you know, what does it mean to create self user generated content to teach other Googlers? So giving and receiving feedback, project management, mindfulness, you know, I had the pleasure of being part of that. Mm -hmm. So now I have the pleasure of being in Google Cloud, specifically with supply chain and operations. And so what does it mean when we have 2200 people just about, and we are doing people programs, learning and development, culture, recognition, awards programs. So being able to own and lead several initiatives and programs, I'm in my happy place because I get the autonomy to scale and design end to end and also insert that learning design and that you know beautiful design process. So it's also consultancy if you will. So that's what I'm doing right now at Google. Okay, amazing. Well, it's, I mean, what an incredible set of experiences and um, brilliant uh, knowledge and a range of things that you bring to the role now. And um, you mentioned design process just then. So maybe you can share a little bit about why design can, can sometimes be messy and, and where the process comes into that. Yeah. 
You know, when someone says, I'm not judging, I'm not judging at all. That to me is they're judging, right? And so (laughs) (laughs) sometimes the term messy design, it evoked an emotion in me right now. And I think it's one of those things where this might be a little controversial, but is design really messy? Because design to me is you have an input and there's a thorough output. Whatever that looks like, you are creating something or you're redesigning something or you're aggregating, right? You're crowdsourcing or you're, um, you know, compiling. And so, okay, let's let's put that aside. Messy design. Um, I think there's multiple reasons, right? I mean, I get that design has multiple iterations and the whole design thinking squiggly line or, you know, just like the we've all seen those graphs, right? Um, it includes it, I think it includes the the straightforwardness of design. And, you know, I think what makes it messy, quite honestly, is the systems thinking approach of it. The, the hierarchies of capitalism and the productivity efficiency um, tensions. So what I mean by that is when we are designing something, there are different needs as to why it's happening in the corporate i'm specifically talking about the corporate and corporate learning design. yeah perfect yeah corporate, yeah the corporate space and so oftentimes there's a there's a need and it's sometimes dictated by senior stakeholders various stakeholders or oftentimes the designer themselves because they see you know i, I got to be doing something i have to produce my value and so when you have that tension what are you really solving though? Because I can give some examples where I thought it was this problem that, okay, we need to create, you know, better facilitator training. Um, you know, facilitators need to have a standardized, standardized process. So there's a consistent user experience. But then when I really got to it, there's a reason why facilitators are not having success with their content. It's because of other factors. It's because of changing org structures or, you know, the fact that, um, you know, not everyone knows what they do. And so I'm giving a very small example, but I think there's there's larger things. But I'm going to I'm going to go out and establish that I think messy design comes down to perhaps you're not solving the right problem. Wow. Excellent. And so um, that's really funny you say that because. I've been speaking a lot recently about kind of human-centered design and really kind of getting back to what is it that's the problem in the, you know, in the beginning. So what are some ways that you do that then? How do you go about that in your role? Mm, Yeah. So when I joined last August, um, I inherited some programs and then my main uh, role was conducting a needs analysis, a needs assessment. And oftentimes you would think a needs assessment is for a specific training program, but how cool it is, how cool is it that I got the autonomy and the space and the complete buy-in to do a needs assessment for the entire org? And so it started with, um, you know, speaking to different users, having that global resonance and asking them, you know, what is a, a typical day in your role? What would a perfect day in your role look like? What do you wish you knew before you joined the team, before you joined the org? Um, What is something that, yeah, so I would ask these questions and, you know, it's really figuring it out. Some of the tips, okay, some of the tips to 
resolve messy design because like I said, design comes down to systems thinking hierarchies and tension points and people's different agendas. This is gonna sound you know, a little non-related, but it is to me. Um, last year I got diagnosed with ADHD and that was actually a great breakthrough moment for me because it was one of those things of, oh, that explains a lot, especially in my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say congratulations to you. I, we've talked about this before and I think it's amazing. So <laughs> good. But tell, but tell us more, tell us more. Thank you. So for me, you know, it's, it's the, the classic thing of, uh, I have so many ideas and it's the, I'm working on an email and then 10 minutes later, it's like an out of body, out of body experience. I'm working on another thing. And so having that, you know, consistency and even my therapist, she said, you know, you are, you are so articulate, you're engaged. But when I look at my notes, you're all over the place, Ashley. And so I decided to equip myself with a coach, an ADHD coach. And I learned so much. And this, these are the things, the strategies that I'm actually applying in my work as a designer and a program manager to combat that messy design. Want to hear it? Yes, I would. I'm, lo I'm loving this. Absolutely want to hear it. Awesome. Okay. So I, I jotted down some notes. Um, First of all, I think um, we as learning design professionals, it's a classic case of, I, I don't like it when people say this because you can't generalize, but us L&D folks, we're people pleasers. We say yes to everything. And, you know, it's in interest of keeping our jobs that we will say yes to that VP that wants a TikTok edutainment um, piece of training, right? And so one of the things I learned in with my ADHD coach is the power of saying no, because when you say yes to one thing, that means you're saying no to another thing or multiple things. So if I say if I'm saying yes to taking a call at 7 p.m., let's give an example. That means I'm saying no, perhaps to my well-being. I'm saying no to my, you know, healthy eating. I'm saying no to working out. You see, it's like that, that effect. And so when you say, when you say um, yes to a project, it's clearly articulating to your stakeholder, to your manager, to your director, that you're saying no to another thing. So, hey, that sounds really interesting, but I need to focus my time on X or I wish I could help with that. I hear it and I see it, but I do need to prioritize why to meet the deadline. So this, so this is in the case of, say, you've been approached with something that you, you just don't have capacity to fulfill or it's more like or it could be that or maybe a circumstance where you think, you know what, that project sounds good, but I know they're not solving for the right problem and I'm going to have to tent tend to that and give it some attention and I don't really have the, the kind of um, bandwidth for it at the moment. Is that is that what you mean when you're sort of choosing to say no? I don't know how much autonomy you get to say no over some of the things that, you know, run over, over your desk. <laughs> yeah, I would say that's a great clarifying question, Kate. It comes down to both. It's the bandwidth piece of multiple projects, you know, multiple, you're juggling multiple deadlines, but it's also within a project you can say no. Um, you know, for example, I'm working on a onboarding program where we merged with another org 
And so we're trying to create that consistent user experience for onboarding. No big feat, right? Huge. And the, the thing that keeps me going is being able to say no to what has previously worked. You're saying no to the things that, are, that have worked in the past because they're not going to work uh, going forward. Um, another thing that has worked for my ADHD coach, I think, is the there's a few things, um, you know, with task initiation, when something feels overwhelming or daunting, it's really just starting with something. So a time timer, I actually have it on my desk. <laughs> and I've done this in meetings, too. If it's a 30 minute meeting and people are talking about roadblocks, I'm giving them, you know, 10 minutes of the 30 minutes. Oh, that's neat. What is it? It. it- Sorry, I'm obsessed with the color fill that it <laughs> shows you're showing us. So you can set, say, 10 minutes and what, and it counts back, obviously down, but it uh, goes back to white. Sorry, I love the design of it. That's a beautiful object. I love it. Okay, but the purpose, <laughs> the, its purpose is to help you keep under control and task focused. Exactly, exactly. So when I want to start something or, you know, if if I'm having that value statement of this is going to be messy, the stakeholders are going to, you know, tear me apart. I'm going to, first of all, start and I give myself 30 minutes. And what's really crazy or even even 10, 15 minutes, that's a standard um, practice. You don't want to stop after 15 minutes, you know, when it starts getting to here, you're already immersed in that. Yeah. Okay, so this uh, explain again to me how that helps you through kind of ambiguity or um, so-called messy design. How does that technique help you? Yeah, so I think what it comes down to is I know it's time and time is very finite, but when you get started, when you get started with design, with messy design, you have to arrive at some type of clarifying solution. And sometimes when you're you're when I have that pressure of time, Sometimes it, you know, will psych me out. But what's really great is, so for example, yesterday I had to work on something that was daunting to me. I had to work on the whole approach because I'm a program manager. I had to work on the whole approach from comms, you know, emails to timelines of how are we going to arrive at a onboarding program where we're, we're helping all, all the people in our org understand what the new org is. And then we're designing for what it looks like for our new folks and transfers. And because I had the pressure of the 15 minutes, I got in that flow and I was able to use the whatever templates, whatever tools I had, and I was able to write flawlessly. It actually got me excited. So I think what it comes down to is from a personal level, it's chunking out the the hesitations or, you know, just like the assumptions in my head of why this is going to be messy. And I'm actually able to produce something on paper. I really admire how you've taken personal practice, personal learning and growth from a significant kind of diagnosis in your world and gone, you know, I embrace this. I am using these techniques to help myself, but also actually to transform the work that I'm doing. That's incredible. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Kate. It's still a work in progress. I mean, as you can tell by my answers, I mean, one of my pet peeves when I listen to podcasts and, you know, different things is, okay, make it applicable, make it concrete. But my, 
my advice and even my advice for myself is try to just think through, it doesn't have to be black or white thinking, which is another ADHD uh, coaching technique, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just avoiding that black, white thinking. It doesn't have to be so um, um, nebulous, but you have to start somewhere. And so if I could have a mantra here for design thinking, messy design, start, just start. If you have a whiteboard, if you, you know, use your time timer, but you have to start because you have the wisdom in of itself uh, to, get, to get started. I'll tell you something I saw recently. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it. Um, one of the reasons that some people say design can be um, a bit of an imperfect process, let's say, let's say that, is that when you start, you have the least amount of information, but the most amount of time. And as time goes on and you're running out and you're, you know, you, you mentioned sort of commercials and, and, you know, stakeholders and all these things, you know, you're coming towards the end of a deliverable because we work in a commercial environment, we have to get stuff out. Suddenly then you have the most information and yet you're making decisions about things that are really critical at the front of that process when you have the least information and i've seen that happen i feel like through the process of first initially coming up with solutions for clients um often we're making a bit of a stab we're taking a load of assumptions we don't really know exactly the whole process on the client side we don't know who all the stakeholders are we don't really know the context as well as we could maybe um, obviously through partnership we work that through but it, it just really struck me as an interesting thing and it made me think maybe there's a point maybe there's this idea that you remember the whole kind of double diamond you know where you sort of kind of have out with thinking and then you kind of pull it back and then you go again and I do think that there's there's value in that but but helping everybody in the design process understand that there are moments where things are kind of fixed and we move forward like you say start we've got to start but equally there are moments where we sort of sense out when to stop so that as we're in you know, gathering more information, we aren't just like stuck on a track and regardless of the new information we're receiving, we have to keep like marching forward and kind of blinker ourselves to it because of time and money and budget and all those other kinds of commercial factors. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that, what I'm talking about, and whether you've kind of, how you've, I don't know, approached that, if you have. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm just curious to know. <laughs> Kate, Kate, that is such a, first of all, I, I couldn't agree anymore. Um, that is such an amazing observation. And I would agree with that as well. Um, however, I think it's one of those things where just because you know it and you know it, you don't always have to, you can challenge it. You can remind yourself and you can say, okay, is that always the case? It's like such an obvious that is it really obvious? Um, so I've, I've faced that many times, um, most notably, you know, at Google, where things are moving so fast, there's a level of reactiveness, um, even throughout a different project, because there are so many amazing people at Google. I'm not exaggerating. There's so many amazing people at Google, and they all get in the weeds. They all get in the details, and they all want to, they kind of have that thumbprint effect, right? Where So it becomes a compounding effect where you have all the, you have all the time in the world, you can explore, you know, but then at the end of the day, in four weeks, we have something to do. Something has to be delivered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something has to be delivered. Um, I think how I navigate through that is there are tactical ways, you know, there's always like a, okay, this is for our MVP. 
you know, our V1 and then, you know, post-launch we can have, you know, a redesign or we can make note of that. And so that's been a theme at Google uh, in my projects where we have a, uh, a tracker of all the things that, you know, we need to implement, uh, think about, reconsider for a post, you know, um, redesign. Now, oftentimes that doesn't usually happen, right? I mean, I've had two projects where we've had this wish list and a reorg happened and we're not even in the same reporting. Circumstances structure. change, new information comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, there's that. I don't have a solution for that, but I wanted to. No one so. does. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's part of it, isn't it? And I suppose just being gentle to ourselves and acknowledging these things are going to happen. This is, you know, and I, I, I really enjoy your, your thoughts on, on, on chunking things out. This, this, this kind of nice combination of making things manageable and moving forward, I think, feels really accessible. And I'm, I'm curious to know, do you pull in your stakeholders on the approach that you're going to take to a design? Do you say, here's how I'm going to go about it? Do you tell them, look, there might be moments where we're going to get your involvement and other times when we're not going to and we got because we've got to keep kind of moving forward? You know, how do you how do you communicate that approach to your stakeholders? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um so that's something stakeholder management is one of the considerations for uh, performance in terms of gauging how effective of a program manager I am. And so, um, you know, there are many times when I kind of, when I think of pre-corporate learning and development, Ashley, I think, you know, fight the power. I don't need to have any micromanager. You know, why do they need to ask? Why do they need to know everything I'm doing in the week? And I've learned through, you know, um, failing fast and moving forward that the last thing you want to arrive at with your stakeholder is when you are up against the wall and you have three days left and you finally overcame the procrastination or the whatever to, you know, have your design and it's, it's completely misaligned. It's not what was planned. And it perhaps creates more feedback, more iterations so for me, I any project it is, I have an outline. Even if it's a deck and it has a skeleton, I at least show my stakeholder, my manager, my colleague, my partner, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? You know, take a day, let me know. And so it's the power of, I don't like going to meetings that waste my time, but there's also power of meeting, knowing what you're doing, and then you're sent off and you have the power of asynchronous uh, time where you can collaborate. So my first advice would be, yeah, have that outline. Show your stakeholder what you're doing. And then um, through the agile process, you know, I've had many, um, you know, milestones based on your, you know, insert project management tool here, you know, Asana, .com, Notion, um, Trello. You're able to chunk it out with milestones, with different phases, and it's just making sure that within each phase, you have your own end-to-end -end design process. Does that make any sense, Kate? I think it does. And I'm familiar with the tools that you've mentioned, but um, your, your sort of continue your thought, because it's interesting to me that you have your own process within that. So th that's the one that you're still going to be kind of communicating to everybody within the team. Correct, correct. Um, everyone in the team. And what that comes down to is we get a lot of emails. I, I understand that. But there is a beauty of content strategy when it comes to project updates, status updates. 
And whether that's email or even a video, it just shows the stakeholders who care, the stakeholders who can impact and influence the design that's becoming, you know, that's becoming more refined. I want to ask you a question about onboarding. And um, I'm really curious about how you know at a point in the design process when you've nailed it, or if you have or not. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know? How do you figure that out? (laughs) So um, shout out to all of my um, orientation team folks. I had, you know, I had the pleasure pleasure of uh, redesigning Nugler and being on the orientation team for a few months. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of research that was done with IDEO, with Deloitte on the onboarding experience at Google. What does it mean uh, with user sentiments and with even uh, benchmarking what other uh, companies do for onboarding? There's so many best practices. I mean, please, I will gladly share it with you of, you know, what are the what are the fangs doing? What are the, you know, even in like for supply chain, right? I had to do a, um, I did an external benchmarking industry research of what are other companies that have supply chain doing? Walmart has an amazing- Did you say, did you say what are the fangs doing? Yes, yes, yeah. What are fangs? <laughs> Sorry to step you back. No worries, no worries. Um, it's one of my pet peeves when I don't explain a metaphor. So um, fangs are, it's the- Facebook, you know, now it's meta, but, you know, Apple, Microsoft, Google, um, you have that that tier of high tech. And so it compromises what's known as fame. Cool. Thank you for explaining. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So you looked around at these best practices, what other people were doing. Yeah. So I looked around and okay, that's great because at least you can gauge success based on common uh, research and common, you know, just aggregated uh, best practices back in 2020. And we first got started and there were proof of concepts of what does it mean to redesign the Nugler? uh, That's our Google onboarding experience from in-person, you know, everyone flies out to their uh, late, you know, closest hub so for cal for you know it's california it's mountain view you know headquarters or new york or for in london um etc etc and what does it mean to completely change that for it to be self-paced asynchronous and still have that global resonance still have that connectedness feel how we know we did it right is a few reasons um it's the obvious favorability scores. When we did our user testing and we did focus groups, advice, divvy up. Don't just user test by having a form and have, you know, they go through one e-learning module. Have a focus group where you're actually facilitating a group of 50 people and then A-B test that with another 50, 100 people that are doing it self-paced and they fill out a form. And it's amazing to see, you know, just the resonance and the the different feedback points. So, of course, favorability scores. But I want to challenge that, too, because oftentimes onboarding programs are naturally received well because it's mixed with the bias of uh, a new employee's excitement of being at a company, being employed, getting paid. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And you can and how and you mitigate against that in some ways or you know what do you do about that? I mean I don't want to. So we we don't mitigate it. I think we are aware of that. You acknowledge it. 
Great. We acknowledge it, right? So if 90% favorability is, you know, our team's benchmark, it's not that we say, okay, if our program is 98% favorable, we deduct three points because of that bias. No, um, but we're aware of it, right? Um, but I think what it comes down to is through user testing, we kind of, we give them the space to show their excitement and then we kind of get a little bit more specific into, you know, the product itself. Um, so before I go on and on and on, I think it comes down to high favorability scores and then global resonance. Just because it works for our California headquarters, new folks, will it work for our other folks in around the world? And so ways to test for that, I think is just having, again, that user centricity and then showing in our design, we were very, very intentional to have Every, so we had four e-learning modules, our mission and values, user trust, our business, and DEI at Google. And we designed these four e-learning modules. Each module was in a different location of the office, of the Google um, world. And so you know, we took our learners you know, from the Mountain View office to the Paris office to then the Amsterdam office, then to Sao Paulo office. And so we were showing that through our design. Um, so as you can probably tell, we had kind of a, around the world, you know, we had little dots uh, on our maps because we also have Google Maps. It <laughs> 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 makes sense. <laughs> no, it's reinforcing. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was very well received. I mean, I think when you when you know something is good is you have people tell you stuff that you didn't even realize was a metric. Oh, interesting. Okay. And do you know at the how early in the design phase did you know you are onto something? Or did you have to deliver it and ship it and get feedback before you knew? Or, you know, you talked about MVPs earlier. Like at what stage did you think, I know, and then you were increasing your confidence of knowledge, or I don't know, but I'm going to try something and great question uh yeah fully yeah fully being transparent it was upon proof of concept so we knew what we were going to set out and um proof of concept and then we wrote out the content for the e-learning so i, I would say it's that phase of post analysis and we're in the development phase well it's a little bit between the design and development phase and you found validation once or a. Uh... Yeah, validation, I guess, once it was out in the in the wild, so to speak. Yes, in the wild. And uh, our first, uh, you know, before we spoke to our users, we met with our director and we showed, you know, it was kind of like a pitch and we showed, you know, the design process, all of the details, you know, in less than 15 minutes. And the director said, let's go for it, baby. This is good. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's always reassuring, too. Um, well, look. We're almost out of time. There's one more question I would love to ask you. You've covered so many brilliant things here. And um, I also just really admire the way that your kind of candor and your self-reflection help you to do a really great job at Google. So, you know, well done for that. And and it's just a kind of, it's, it's really, it's been fascinating hearing about that. And so thank you for sharing it. And I'm thinking about other L&D professionals. Okay, so imagine you meet somebody else. They're confronting a scaled program with multiple stakeholders, maybe an aggressive timeline, potential ambiguity. They're looking at, I don't know, maybe part of their business has merged. And so there's this kind of 
culture to work through there? Anybody who's facing a, a so-called potentially messy, perhaps ambiguous challenge, uphill challenge potentially, how would you, what would you advise them just to kind of condense down everything you said, I guess? What would be your takeaways for them? Yeah. Um, first of all, I relate because we're going through that, you know, right now, I think, you know, um, post, uh, you know, in our post-pandemic, post-great resignation, you know, it goes without saying that we Google has been in the news along with other high-tech companies with layoffs, um, you know, and so it's one of those things where, yeah, things are, things are very unique right now at Google because of, you know, just so much change. And uh, there's a big saying at Google, um, you know, the only thing that's constant is change at Google. And um, that's not just at Google, right? Obviously, look at our world. Some pieces of wisdom I would give is um, realize that the world is not about you with learning and development. Not everyone is going to resonate with our terms of, you know, Kirkpatrick levels or Bloom's taxonomy or even the Addy process. And, um, you know, and so I think it comes down to really understanding your audience. And if there's a problem, if there's a request, you know, suppose you need more budget, it's, it's really having that user centricity in mind of how, how, what are their, you know, their point of view, what are they trying to ask, you know, or like, okay, what are they trying to figure out? So oftentimes for me, when I speak to a stakeholder or a manager or a leader, it's okay. Are there going to be any resource implications, any budget, you know, asks, is this going to affect my day-to-day job? You know, what am I going to have to do? Um, as a result of this X, Y, Z, you know, um, development. So, okay, that would be my first piece of advice. The second, I think, is um, the 80-20 rule, you know, working smart, not hard. Designers, practitioners, L&D professionals, don't recreate the wheel. What it comes down to is within your org, within our LinkedIn communities, of um, you know, learning and development, there are so many amazing templates, practices that people have already figured this out. And I know you're probably thinking, okay, where are these said templates? I mean, you're gonna have to look for it. But it's amazing of you know, how much already exists where even for me, I'll be honest, part of my ADHD manifests when I'm trying to get the right template, the right format, rather than focusing on the content itself. And so if I'm using my, my precious bandwidth and my energy and my resources, and if you magnify that day over day, week over week, year over year, I mean, that's, that's a sizable amount and a sizable consequence. So yeah, that would be my second piece of advice. It's, you know, working smart, um, you know, by seeking out what already exists and leveraging different previous designs. Sometimes it's like equivalent of, you know, I already wore this, I don't want to be seen wearing it again. Why not? If it worked the first time in your design, do replicate the design in another project. That's really super advice and something that I think as designers, maybe we get a little overexcited about doing the new thing and um, need to remember that there are really good tried and tested methods out there. I mean, much like you said, you know, when you looked at the fangs, um, there's already established good practice for onboarding. And uh, why not lean into it if it's working? And maybe the change and the shift is just how do we throw that through a lens given the amount of post-COVID, you know, like 
you know, layoffs, okay, there's, there's sometimes so much change going on in organizations. What do we need to tweak to make this work in this new context? Um, but that, I guess, is all about embracing everything that you've just said, understanding the context, keeping context, keeping the user right at the heart of it and uh, making sure you know your, your audience and, um, and going for it. I love the optimism that you have. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like depending on the day, because sometimes, you know, um, uh, just, you know, navigating my own challenges of burnout, uh, depression, anxiety, um, you know, so I think what it comes down to is what's your personal value proposition? You know, why do you how, why do you show up to work? Because the beauty of it is. It, when you kind of assume a abundance thinking mindset is I have so many options, right? There's no golden handcuffs here as much as it's, you know, Google is an amazing company. But I think what it comes down to is my value proposition. The reason, um, because I've had some, cons I've had my own insecurities working at Google of <sighs> I'm learning and development. Am I a cost center? Will I be the first one to go in the next layoff? Regardless of, I mean, what happens is going to happen. But I think for me, it's, is what I'm doing here to create efficiency or increase productivity for my users? So that's the only thing that keeps me going um, right now in my day-to-day -day work, uh, is, what I'm going to, is what I'm building, designing, onboarding, creating, manufacturing, producing, is this going to help someone with their efficiency and their productivity? And it sounds like you've nailed it because you've created that joy in the Nugler program, for example. And others, of course, but <laughs> what a brilliant, what a brilliant, um, uh, I don't know, accolade to, to take. Um, and well done for that. That's super cool. Um, it's been so nice talking to you, Ashley. I just love our conversations. I love how candid you are. I love how you, how reflective you are and how you sort of throw that, all of that into your work to make things better. So um, it's been a pleasure and I hope you have a really awesome rest of your day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kay. I have uh, I'm a big fan of your podcast and I want to be able to, you know, listen more to listen to more. And so what you're doing, I'm not just saying this because you had me on. You're doing you're contributing also to that value prop of efficiency and productivity and joy. So kudos to you, Kate and team. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Take care. We'll speak soon. Bye bye. Take care. Bye. <laughs>